Well, we are beginning a brand new series this morning. Uh, we, for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, one of my favorite New Testament letters. I think one of the most underrated books in the New Testament, uh, the book of First Peter. And we are calling this series Living Hope. Now, hope is what Peter invites his readers to in, in the opening words of this letter. Hope is something that I think we all want more of, uh, especially as we come out of the Easter season, uh, this idea of resurrection and life. We all want to experience hope. Hope is one of the uh, most essential virtues of the Christian life. And yet, hope is kind of a, a difficult concept to understand. It's kind of vague and abstract. Right? On one hand, we, we all know what hope means. We all have an idea of what hope is. But at the same time, hope is one of those words that I think gets used so much that it has lost a lot of its meaning, that we don't always really think about what it means. For, for example, just, just try to think of the last time that you said the sentence or thought in your head, I hope dot, dot, dot. Like, how did you finish that sentence? What were you hoping for? I really wish that we had the technology to where I could, like, read your minds and project your answers up on that screen right now so we could all see all of the hopes, all of the last things we all hope for because, right, there would be a pretty interesting variety. I hope the Lakers win today. I hope I don't get sick this week. I hope I can finish that project in time. I hope the season finale of The Mandalorian is good. I hope I don't fall asleep in church again. We hope for a lot of different things, and we hope in a lot of different contexts. And that's good. That's, that's, that's normal. That's just one way that we use this word. But in this book, as we talk about this idea of living hope, Peter is talking about a different idea. He's talking about just this this confident, peace-inspiring, living, active, life-changing hope that fills us up and changes and defines the way we view life, faith, and especially our struggles, our challenges. And so in this series, we're going to explore what that means, what it looks like. And I think in many ways what we'll find is that as we talk about hope, uh, this series is really going to be about what it means to be a church how to be church people, how to do church things, and, and how to do those in a way that helps us become a community of living hope. So we're going to just go ahead and, and dive right into our text. Today we're going to be looking at kind of the introductory verses of Peter's letter, the first 12 verses. And this passage kind of introduces the letter and the larger theme of hope. And it kind of gives us an idea of where we're headed in the rest of where we're headed in the rest of the series. And we're really going to look at two things today: is why we need hope, and how we can have it. Uh, we're going to focus on our need for hope and the basis for our hope. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to First Peter. Uh, we're going to start in chapter one, verse one. It reads, "Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ." To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. 
Now, I want to just stop there for a second, because before we get into kind of the meat of the letter, the main introduction section, we want to address some of the important context of this book. Because here in this is a short little introduction. This is basically dear churches from Peter. Even in just this short little beginning section, we begin to see why these believers in this early church were in need of hope. In the first sentence of the letter, Peter addresses his readers this way. He says, To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, unless you are an expert in ancient Near Eastern geography, those names probably don't mean very much to you. But Peter is writing to churches in Asia Minor. This is an area that's basically modern-day Turkey. And this is kind of outside of the main hub of early Christianity. It's unlikely that Peter knows these believers or has visited these churches. We don't have any evidence that he started the churches or had any relationship with them. But what most scholars believe is that the Christians who lived in these churches or attended these churches, they weren't from these areas. They're not like born and raised Cappadocian or born and raised Galatian. Instead, they ended up there as a result of some kind of historical event. Scholars disagree whether this was like persecution or some kind of Roman colonization. But the, the main idea here is that the people who live here, they're, they're not from here, and they don't feel at home here. They are struggling to feel like they belong in this new foreign world that they live in. And this is important that Peter calls them exiles. He says that they are scattered in these regions. And so again, they don't feel like they're at home. They don't feel like they belong. And to make matters worse, they are struggling to be faithful. They're struggling to be a church in what is a kind of hostile context. See, they live in a, in a pagan world. They live in a place where beliefs, values, practices, they're based on a pagan worldview, on false gods, immoral standards. And so the church is finding itself feeling isolated, rejected, and unwelcome. Uh, this past week, I was lucky enough to go to Crypto.com Arena for a Laker game. I went to the play-in game on Tuesday against the Minnesota Timberwolves. If, I assume you all watched the game, but they, they won this game, and it was really fun. It was a sloppy game. There was a lot of mistakes, a lot of missed shots, a lot of, a lot of dumb things that happened. But man, it was an exhilarating experience. And what I didn't realize, or what I had kind of forgotten, I haven't been to a game in several years, it's just how awesome it feels to be like in a crowd, right? The togetherness you feel when you're all kind of like pulling for the same thing. There's like an energy to it, right? Like how many places, I mean, other than church, right? How many places do you go where we're all like, we all want the exact same thing in this moment. We're going to stand up and cheer and clap and yell and say mean things to the refs and, and all this stuff all together as one. The energy of this is, is amazing. And so in this context, right, where, where there's this unity, there's this sense of togetherness, it was a little bit jarring, a little bit annoying to be sitting in front of a guy who was rooting for the Timberwolves, who was kind of not with us in our support of the Lakers. Now, obvious caveat, as like a rational, normal person, I understand why he was there. 
I understand his right to be there. He was pretty respectful. He wasn't loud or obnoxious. And so, look, I, I think he was a good guy. But as a sports fan, in the heat of the moment, he was driving me crazy. Like, you know, we were losing most of the game. I was super tense about everything. And so every time he cheered when the T-Wolves would score, every time he would just kind of make a comment about a player or, or a foul, everything he said was like nails on a chalkboard. It's like a thorn in my side. And I just felt annoyed. And, you know, in my head, it's like, dude, why are you even here? This is a place for Laker fans. This is our building. Go home. You know, like there's like a teensy part of me, like 5% of me, 10, maybe 20, 30, 40% of me that wanted to maybe turn around and just give him like a passive aggressive look. Like, <laughs> we don't like you. We don't want you to be here. I didn't do this because I didn't want to get beat up, but I felt it. And in a way, this is how the pagan world felt about Christians. This is kind of the, the world that they had stepped into. They had walked into this pagan arena where everybody's like, hey, we're rooting for the same thing. We're pushing in the same direction. We believe the same things. We want the same things. We live the same way. We live for the same values. And in walks these Christians, and they're like, what are you even doing here? Why would you come live here? Why would you do your practices? Why would you say what you say and pray the way you pray and do the things you do? We don't like you. Now, there's, there's not really any evidence that this was a, a period of violence. Uh, there's persecution that would take place later on in the church that was much, much worse. But at the same time, what we do know is that there was a very real and very challenging social cost that believers were facing. This was uh, more than just passive-aggressive looks. See, this was an honor-shame society. And, and so to live differently, to, to make these choices that Christians were making was to bring just utter shame on yourself. And so what they faced was, was things like ridicule, mockery, social rejection, loss of relationship, loss of jobs, loss of financial well-being, feelings of loneliness, uncertainty about safety and well-being. Really everything, you know, that makes life good for them was being taken away. And so in this unwelcome and hostile world, the church is facing uh, a lot of different challenges, but two main issues in relation to their faith and their future as a church. First, they're struggling to live faithfully in a pagan context, right? It would be obvious that in this setting, it would be pretty tempting to compromise your faith, all this social pressure, all this pushing back, all this like, hey, just go with the flow of what culture is doing, and, and we'll love you again. We'll accept you again. You can have a job again. It would be tempting to say, hey, maybe I should do that. Every day they face that daunting question, is it worth it? Is following Jesus really worth all of this cost? Secondly, Peter's readers are struggling to understand suffering and hardship in light of God's promises. Right? I think we all know that it's hardest to trust God in the midst of suffering. It's hard to trust God when things are not going your way. And so when their lives and relationships are suffering, their financial well-being is struggling, it's natural to doubt the goodness of God, the promise of resurrection life. 
And so these are people who have very real and very raw questions about their struggle. Why is this happening? What does it mean? What does it say about God, about who he is and how he feels about us? And so this is a really important context for us to consider. Now, I don't, I don't think we live in a world that's quite as pagan as the New Testament world, uh, and we don't experience this level of shame and rejection because of our faith. But at the same time, right life and faith come with real hardship. We struggle because of our faith, and we struggle in spite of our faith, and it is difficult to understand. It's hard to endure the reality of hardship. Uh, for the past few months, I've been in helping out in our uh, young adult group on Thursday nights, our college and young adult group, and even though this makes me feel really old, we play this game every once in a while where, um, where if a new person comes and they have to guess everyone's age, like they put us in order of youngest to oldest. Now, Eric is there. <laughs> JT is there. But you know who they always pick as the oldest? I have, I have no idea why that would be. I know, I know, it's the hair. But anyway, even though I feel super old when I'm there, it's been a really cool experience. And one of the things that's been impactful for me, just like as a pastor and as a leader, is just this reminder of how challenging it is to be a young Christian, to remember being in that spot. As, you know, as we talk together, as we share life together, we're going through this teaching series on, on, on ethics, on how to live in the world around us. I'm just reminded that this intersection between faith and real life, man, it's hard when you're like 20 years old, right? It's hard to trust God with your future when you don't know What's going to happen with school and with work and getting a job and getting good grades? It's hard to trust God with all of that. It's hard to live faithfully uh, with so many other values out there, with so many of your friends, the people at your school and your workplace who don't follow Jesus. It's hard to deal with all the, the disappointment and worry and anxiety that come with this age, this stage of life. Now, my point isn't that only people who are young have these problems. Those of you who are older like me, we know that. But just sitting with them reminded me of this simple truth that there are unique struggles that come with every stage of life. And I think we sometimes forget in our, in our own little bubbles of how hard everyone has it. You know, you come to church on any given Sunday and you look around at the person to your right and the person on your left and chances are they are struggling too with something. And I have such a tendency to forget that, to not think about it, and, and we can lose sight of the fact that life isn't just hard for me, it's hard for all of us. And no matter how much we grow, no matter how much life changes, uh, this is always going to be the case. And how do we reckon with that as a church? How do we, in the midst of all this struggle, come together as a community to follow Jesus, to, to trust God, to, to move forward in meaningful ways. And this really is the tension that Peter is speaking into. These are the questions that he knows he has to deal with as he writes this letter. These are the types of people, these struggling people, who he wants to bring encouragement and comfort to. And so as we continue on in our opening passage, we see him begin to address these challenges. So let's continue on in verse 3. 
He writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Now, if this passage is anything, it's a mouthful. Here's something interesting. In the original Greek, this entire section, all ten sentences, is one long run-on sentence. You get the idea here that as Peter is responding, as he begins this letter, you feel like he's got a million things to say. And he doesn't want to miss any of them. It's just like he's kind of grabbing at different ideas. And he's building a larger case. And he's setting the foundation for this entire letter. But for as complex as this passage is, for as many things as he wants to touch on, the main exhortation here is pretty simple. Right? This whole run-on sentence flows out of one basic idea. He says right at the beginning, praise God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is interesting, right? That, that as Peter begins to address these struggling believers, these people who are, who are suffering, who are hurting, who are experiencing loss, he says, point one, before you do anything else, before we talk about anything else, praise God, even in your situation, there is enough reason for praise for joy, for you to offer thanksgiving right here and right now. And the question, of course, is why? Why is Peter so bold in this exhortation? Why is he so confident, so certain that the church actually can respond in this way in spite of their struggle, in spite of their brokenness? And the reason is, is pretty simple. The reason is that he knows how powerful the gospel is. He knows what it means that Jesus died and rose again. He knows the way this speaks into our struggles, that it speaks into the life of faith, even when life is not as it should be. And he sums up this powerful gospel truth in six words, six beautiful words that speak into our suffering, give us motivation for joy and worship. Here they are, new birth into living hope. 
Let's read that all together. Ready? New birth into living hope. All right, so you, hopefully you'll remember that now that you've said it out loud, because this is the focal metaphor of the entire letter. This is really the idea that Peter wants to develop, that he wants believers to understand. This is the truth that is going to help them respond to their suffering if it's applied rightly. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is just kind of briefly unpack these six words, why they're so good, why they're so praiseworthy. So let's begin here with the first part of the metaphor, new birth. We have been given new birth. In the most basic sense, what Peter is telling us is that we have been born into a brand new, markedly different life. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, everything is new. Everything has changed. And I think this is an idea that is easy to undersell. You know, the, the, the phrase born again in Christian circles can be kind of cliche. It can, again, lose a little bit of meaning for us. But it's such a radical idea. Because Peter is saying that because we have died and risen again with Jesus... We get to step into an existence, a way of living and thinking and being that is completely different. Uh, as many of you know, last week I had the, just this awesome privilege of baptizing my son, Grayson. That was such a, a cool experience. Um, but one of the best parts for me is actually the, the process of preparing him, right? Getting to have these conversations about baptism, about what it means, about what he's going to say in, you know, in the little video, and just helping him to understand all of this. And one of the conversations that we had in, in the baptism class and at home was just this idea that baptism is primarily a symbol, right? So baptism represents what takes place in our salvation. It represents this, this death and resurrection with Jesus, and I really try to emphasize this in the baptism class, especially with kids, because I want to just make sure that they have the right expectations, right? That they're not kind of setting the bar too high. You know, you worry that they think, well, I'm going to go under the water and I'm going to come up and like, like everything's going to be different. Like the birds are going to be chirping, the sun is going to be shining, I'll have new like superpowers and like, wow, this is going to be so cool. And it is cool, but you know, help them understand you know, what, what's really going to happen. And the thing is, is, is to know Jesus, it, it really is that different. I think when it comes to the, what baptism represents to actual salvation, I actually think we have our expectations way too low. We, we set the bar so low because Peter says when you come to faith, something actually does change. You, you put your faith in Jesus and the sun is shining, the birds are chirping, you have new super, everything has changed. It's being born again means your whole existence is new and different. I think the, probably the closest analogy, or one of the closest analogies we have to this idea, is becoming a parent. How having a kid changes so much about you. And every parent knows this, for, for better or for worse. Uh, a few months ago, uh, our church staff got together and we were having like a, a belated uh, Christmas lunch. And at the end of the, the, the lunch, we all got together in the parking lot and we're getting ready to say our goodbyes. And this was the week before Matt and Kreisha Wada had little cute little baby Henry. 
And so we're getting ready to say goodbye. And so Tina, Tina Lorenz, kind of gathers us together for like this special moment, right? This is going to be our last time together as a staff before Matt and Kresha kind of take some time away for the baby. And so she kind of looks at Matt and Kresha and says, I want to give you guys a hug. I want to say goodbye because this Matt and Kresha are going to be gone forever. <laughs> like, we're never going to see you guys again, right? Like, young adult Matt and Kresha, you guys are gone. And you know what? That's okay, because there's going to be a new Matt and Kresha, parent Matt and Kresha, tired Matt and Kresha, stressed out all the time Matt and Kresha. You will be a new creation. There's a new life waiting for you. Now, you know, as a parent, you know, we can laugh tongue-in-cheek about this. You, you kind of become a different person, but it's true, right? So much changes, like what you eat changes, what you do in your free time changes, your values and priorities change, and nobody really has to tell you to do it. It's not like it's this kind of constant choice in every moment. Well, I'm going to change now because I'm a parent. It's just you are different. The moment you bring that kid home, your whole outlook towards life changes. And as dramatic as that change can be, it pales in comparison to the kind of new life, new birth that we are meant to, that we are invited to experience in Jesus. And so what Peter wants us to do more than anything else is to live our lives, see our lives, experience life in light of this new birth. And he wants us to look at everything and reinterpret and redefine what's happening in light of the gospel. If we pay really close attention, we'll see that Peter starts doing this right away. This is the first thing he does in this letter. right? In, in verse 1, Peter identifies the church as scattered exiles. And so he's kind of recognizing, like, hey, this is how you see yourself in kind of this old way of living and in relation to this old earthly life. You're foreigners, you're aliens, you're people who don't belong. This is the way you might see yourself, this is the way you might feel, this is the way other people might see you. But what about when viewed in light of the gospel? Who are you now? You are chosen. You are elect. You have been made new and become children of the Father. You are wanted, you are loved, you are desired, protected. And he says, just right from the start. This is the new identity that you've been born into. It's a tangibly different way of seeing life, tangibly different way of seeing themselves because they have this new birth. And really, this is the theme of the series. We're going to see this over the next several weeks, all these ways that Peter says, I want you to reframe this experience. You've lost relationships, or you're struggling with rejection. Guess what? You have a new family, a new community. You have lost jobs and lost you know, work, and you're not sure what to do. He says, you have a new purpose, a new mission. He says, hey, listen, you're struggling, you're suffering, you're hurting. Let me help you understand what that means in light of the cross, in light of Jesus' suffering. He wants us to, in every phase of life, view things through this new birth, through this new life, rather than this old way of seeing things. And what he wants us to focus on here in the opening passage is just this one kind of small part of this new birth, but it's really important. We come back to our six key words. Peter says, you've been given new birth into what? 
into living hope. Again, this is the foundational idea of this letter, the idea that we can have hope, we can have confidence, we can have joy, and it can be alive in the midst of everything else going around us. We can have confidence and peace in something that's not dead, it's not dying. We don't have to live with uncertainty and doubt. It is alive. And once again, what he's doing, right, is he's building a contrast between how we might have viewed things before, how we might have thought of hope in the old way of thinking about things, versus how we can view it now as new people, as new creations. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, We have been born into an inheritance in heaven that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Now, those last three words, perish, spoil, or fade, are a clear allusion to the hopes of this world. He's thinking about all of these things that believers have lost, all these things that believers are struggling with, all these things that believers are missing, right? Things like status, reputation, money, relationships, possessions, comfort, health, the praise of others, a great job, and lots of stuff. He's saying not that those things don't matter, not that believers can't be bummed out to lose those things, but he's saying let's be honest about those Those are not living hopes. Those are not things that will will last. You can't take them with you. They are temporary. And so he's saying, look, let's not lose perspective. There is something you have been given that's much better, that you've inherited as a part of this new life. And this this word inheritance is really important because he's saying it already belongs to you. God has already decided to give it to you. It's waiting for you. It's yours, this richness of eternal life and glory with Jesus. And the challenging thing, of course, anytime we talk about this idea, anytime we talk about heaven, anytime we talk about future hope, is that it can be easy to dismiss because we feel like it doesn't help us today. Right? Like, the hope of heaven doesn't do anything for me now, future blessing, I can't cash that in today. But this isn't really Peter's point. He's not saying this is how to ignore all your problems or this is how to be happy all the time. What he's saying, though, is that this is how you can endure. This is how you can live with faithful endurance, how you can continue to believe in spite of everything around you that God is faithful how you can continue to trust him and follow him, how you can live out this commitment to this new life and new birth. He's saying as you consider what you have, right, as you kind of look around and take stock of is my life good or is my life bad? He says, look, you you can account for all the things that you've lost. And and it's hard, and, and I get it. But when you're taking stock, you cannot forget what God has given you. You cannot forget what you have waiting for you. When you consider, is God good? Has God blessed me? Does God love me? Yes, we can think about everything going on in our lives, but we can't forget about that huge inheritance that God has decided to give us through the death and resurrection of his son. Don't forget how much you have, if you take away everything in this life, you still have that, and it is amazing. And it will never be taken from you. 
Nothing that, that can happen, no, no suffering, no struggle can ever make you lose that because it's under God's protection. And see, ultimately what he wants us to see is that this future hope in heaven, it does flow into our present experience of joy. Right? What, what Peter is really challenging us to do is to think about joy and worship and praise through the lens of this new birth and this new hope. And again, it doesn't mean that we gloss over the hardship, but it means that we recognize God's goodness. And ultimately, this is the reason why Peter can say at the beginning of this letter, right, where, where we, he can say with such confidence to people who are suffering, he can say, hey, praise God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's because this new life is full of joy. See, when we see things through the lens of this new birth, who we are, what we have, and we realize how much we've been given, we see that this life is supposed to be full of thankfulness and worship. That's, that's kind of the undercurrent of this whole passage. You notice how he talks about rejoicing in tri trials being filled with this inexpressible and glorious joy. What he wants us to see is how, how much fulfillment we can have in what God has given us. And so kind of the starting point of this letter, the starting point of our calling as a church that struggles is to continue to worship. That's why worship is so central to the life of the church. It's why we begin and end our service with, with songs and praise because it is a reminder and a tangible experience of the hope that we have. It's the reason why we invite you to sing, why we invite you to stand, why sometimes Matt stands up here and he claps his hands. Because it fills us with joy. I genuinely believe that worship, it begins as a response. It begins with a, a response to what God has done. But when we do it, God brings that hope to life in new ways. It's almost the way that hope becomes living hope. As we live out the joy, as we reflect on it, as we sing about it together as a community, as a church body. I think we experience new birth and new life, especially, maybe more than in any other way, through this act of, of corporate worship. And so the, the encouragement for us is, is just to continue singing. You know, this morning, just during that first set, man, I, I, was just, I was just coming from a tough week. It was like a hard week. It was a long week. Yesterday was a really tough day. And right, there's this choice Right, so to live in that moment and to just kind of sit with this fog over me of like, man, it's, I'm just not feeling it today. But I, I felt that, I, probably because I was working on this message all week, this choice to lean into this amazing message of God's sovereignty, his creation, and his love for me as his beloved child. Worship is an invitation to embrace new life and feel new hope. And so... Uh, we want to continue to do this. We want to continue to sing and rejoice and praise this God of new birth and living hope. And throughout this series, I, my, my prayer is that you grow in your understanding of why this is so good and that we as a church continue to worship God with, with joy and thanksgiving. Uh, let's pray together.